This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him also that he might be with him. He did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. You may be seated. My guess is after hearing that text maybe after reading it for the first time at some point in your life, you have probably, if I could poll the audience, there's probably three main questions. And I realize I sound much better today than normal. I have a cold. And um, if I wasn't up all night afraid to swallow because of how bad it hurt, I would want this all the time because it makes me sound like Steve Brown. Um, (laughs) But uh, this is not normally me. I normally have a very nasally, whiny, pitchy voice. Um, which will probably show up at some point through a squeal of some, some type. Uh, when I was talking to my mentor about this text, I have two. One of them teaches me via MP3, and one of them teaches me via the phone. And I said, you know, how in the world do we talk about this passage? What is going on here? And he said, point one, don't get demon-possessed. And I thought, that's pretty good advice. I'll tell them that right off the bat. Um, but then there's probably three questions, I think, running through your mind. The first question is, what is going on with this man? Three times it says he has an unclean spirit or spirits. And three times he's said to be possessed by demons, which literally in the Greek it just says he's demonized. I mean, the demons are just having their way with him. We'll get to that. All right, we're going to talk about that a good bit. Secondly, you're probably asking, what is going on with the pigs? What an obscure part of the story. And I I would tell you, you can search Israelite history. You can search Greco-Roman history. You can search all the literature available to you in the largest library, and you will not find anything that will help you understand what's going on with these pigs. That I've got some sense of an idea, but we won't waste a whole lot of time on it. 
There's just not a lot of consensus. And so for me as a young teacher, if I can't find consensus from those who have gone before me, I tend to not talk about it too much. The third thing you're probably wondering is why does the story end in such a weird way? Like if you can get to that point of saying, so far Jesus had told people, don't tell anybody what I've done. And he says to this guy, I want you to proclaim to your friends and family in 10 cities. That's what Decapolis means. I want you to tell them what I've done for you and the mercy I've shown you. And at the same time, he wants, he is sitting at Jesus's feet, verse 15, and he wants to be with Jesus. This is the word Jesus has used for discipleship, that people would come and be with him, be in loving relationship with him. They would sit at his feet and learn what to do and go do it. And he's asking to be an intimate disciple of Jesus. And he says, no, we'll try and circle back to that some later as well. But what I don't want us to miss in this text with all the parts that we will not understand when I am done teaching. What I don't want us to miss from this text, amidst all we will not understand the day we die, is some just major big themes. The first is this, Jesus is more powerful than Satan and all of his minions. Do you see this exorcism happening in this text? It's almost comedic. It is complex. Do you see how Jesus, it says, he kept asking, he kept saying, come out of him. And our, our translation here, the ESV, gets this right. Jesus has said multiple times, come out of him. And finally, he says, what is your name? Because there wasn't just one unclean spirit in this man. There was a legion of unclean spirits in this man. A, a legion is, is a Roman military term that's anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 troops. But the point of a legion is this, is that we are many, but we are one. And that's why they say, when he says, what is your name? It says, let me look for it. I'm in verse uh, not eight. My name, singular, is legion, singular, for we, plural, are plural, many. And yet, what the scriptures will portray here is the most demonized person in history is nothing compared to the power of Jesus. Let's just not forget that particularly if you're young in your faith and this might cause some fear in you when I start to unwrap what it means to be demonized. Jesus is way more powerful than Satan. And just as the simple way that he calms the sea last week, he can simply send thousands of demons, supernatural, personal spirits. He can just send them into pigs and they go rushing down a hill. Let's not forget that. I also would like to remind you that not only is Jesus more powerful than Satan, but just like yesterday in City Bible reading, wasn't it great in Psalm 62, where at the very end it said, two things belong to our God, two things our God possesses, power and steadfast love. One of the lies that you and I live by is the lie of Satan, which tells us that we can be in charge of ourselves. That is a lie. As humans, created by God, in his image, we're created for authority. We're created for someone outside of us to give us direction. We're created to submit. We're created to be humble. And this passage is showing us that you'll either be under the authority, the enslavement, and the control of Satan. I'll come back to this in a minute. Or you'll be under the loving, gracious, kind control of Jesus. Under Satan's authority, you will inflict all kinds of horrible realities upon yourself, chasing after idols and lifestyles that don't line up with how God tells us to live life. But juxtaposed to that, in contrast to that, compared to that, is verse 15, this beautiful picture 
of this man who has been tormented for so long, sitting, dressed, and in his right mind. That he's now under the authority of the loving creator of the universe. Last but not least, regardless of how messed up you are, regardless of how much wreckage in the wake of my life, regardless of how torn and tormented you feel right now, that is nothing in the face of the grace and the power of Jesus. That is the biggest point of the entire story. All 20 verses boil down to that right there. I don't care how messed up you are. You are redeemable. You are forgiven. You are loved you're transformed, you're enjoyed in Jesus. That's good news. Now, in the midst of that, let's just deal with this reality. Let's just deal with the three mentions of the unclean spirit, the three mentions of the demonization. Let's just get to it. This is the most vivid, the most graphic, the most detailed, the most lamentable, the most sad picture in all of scripture of someone who is possessed, for lack of a better word, by a demon. And at the same time, it is the most vivid, the most detailed, the most drawn out, the most graphic, the most repetitive of all of the exorcisms in scripture. And there are some in the Old and the New Testament. So let's just deal with this. If you don't know what you believe about the Bible, if you're a cynic or, or a skeptic or a seeker trying to figure this out, you, um, your first thought is going to be that this is rather irrational and illogical. And I like when the church talks about helping the poor and sending people to Africa. That's cool for me. And I like it when the church talks about forgiveness and reconciliation. Those are all really cool concepts. But when you step into the realm of supernatural, invisible, spiritual, personal evil, you've lost me. I want you to know that in the Presbyterian church, we behave just like you. Did you know that for four years, I went to the PCA college Four years, covenant, on Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Three and a half years, I went to a very good reform seminary right here in Oviedo. Now, this might be my fault. I'm not sure. This may be my educator's fault. Not one class was I given on spiritual warfare the entire time. Not one class on what this might mean right here. So believer and unbeliever, Let's just take a look at what the Bible actually says. If you're a skeptic or a cynic or a seeker, you're trying to figure this out. When you say to me, that's irrational, which means you need to go prove that those forces and those personal forces exist, I will just turn that on its head and say the same to you. You prove they're not there, and then I'll prove that they're there. Secondly, you will say to me, this happens a lot, both in books and literature and in the media, and this happens in personal conversation with me when I try and explain the gospel to people. They will say, what a primitive, simplistic, single-dimensional culture that the Bible is. That every time someone sneezes in the Bible, there's a demon behind it. And we're much more developed now. We're much more evolved now. We're much more, we're just... Well, I don't want to say it, but we're just smarter now, and we just know more, and so we know the world is just very, very complex, and there's just more going on here. There's like, there's physical problems that might cause seizures and stuff that they used to blame on demons in the Bible, and not only that, there's mental illness now that they used to call uh, demonization in the Bible. I mean, it's just, can, can we get back to the Jesus, the Jesus part, the cool stuff I like, and get rid of this primitive, simplistic, ancient 
worldview. I would just point you to Matthew 4, 23 and 24. In Matthew 4, 23 and 24, this is what it says about Jesus's ministry. He was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Now listen to this list. Those, one, oppressed by demons, two, lunatics, we'll come back to that word in a second. Three, paralytics. I mean, the point is, is the biblical worldview can take into account everything our worldview can take into account, that being modern America. But what the, what the biblical worldview takes into account is this reality of supernatural personal forces that you cannot see that are behind what's going on and what you experience. You see that? This word lunatic, it's, it, in my translation, it's, it's an epileptic. The King James The King James translation of the Bible gets this right when it says lunatics. We just don't like that word because it's so pejorative. But you just won't find a lot of places in Greek history and Greek literature where this word is epileptic. It's lunatic. It just means someone with a mental illness. And this is the point. That this culture and these people in the Bible and Jesus knew the difference between mental illness, physical illness, and spiritual oppression. And so if your argument to me is that so simplistic that's so primitive. If that's going to be the foundation of our conversation, I will just turn that back on you and say, actually, my worldview is more complex, nuanced, and multidimensional than yours. Last but not least, and I'm sorry I'm spending so much time on this, but I feel like we have to. Last but not least, my worldview, my understanding of reality, even as limited and finite and underdeveloped that it is, it deals with reality better than yours. When we pray for an AIDS pandemic among eight-month-olds in Africa, I've got a worldview that can understand that. It's called Satan and all that work for him because he loves to kill and destroy and do away with human beings. You can't deal with that with your simplistic worldview. You just can't. When I look at the news media and all that is wrong in the world and all the horrible atrocities that are going on in our world, my worldview, my understanding of reality can explain that. When I look at my very heart and when I look at the pain inside of me caused by other people, my worldview can make sense of that. Yours can't. I would just ask you to wrestle with that reality that if you'll just look at what is going on in the world and in your heart and in your relationships, this worldview that I'm about to espouse to you, that I'm about to explain to you, makes a lot more sense than the materialistic, shall we say, simplistic, primitive worldview that we were taught in school and in the media. Okay, so moving on. Now I'm gonna start talking about what is the Bible's teaching on this passage. My real fear is, my real fear is that we would say, I don't feel possessed. I'm not, I'm not gashing myself with rocks right now. Uh, I'm not shrieking out wildly and uncontrollably. I don't live in a graveyard. This passage has really very little to do with me. Other than, oh yeah, Jesus is more powerful. That's a cool thing to worship. And in case I ever come across someone like this, I'm gonna remember Mark 5. This is a good thing for me to have. My hope for us this morning is this, is that we would realize that it is better for us to understand ourselves as the garrison demoniac than the crowd that it's actually a quite good place to be when you begin to understand that you're more like the demoniac than not. 
That's what hit me between the eyes even this morning as I was trying to figure out this passage. Let's look. Let's just start at a biblical worldview, look at the whole thing, and then we'll focus right back down into this passage and try to understand how we are just like this demoniac. We are maybe to not to the same degree, but of the same kind. Maybe not to the quantity that he is oppressed, but to the, to the quality, to the type, to the DNA, to what Satan wants to do. Listen, let's just start at the top. There is a personal, supernatural evil in this world, and he has subordinates, and the Bible calls them demons, unclean spirits, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. And his dominion is the dominion of death and darkness. That is where he is in charge. That is where he rules and reigns. That is where he has authority and power. He clearly says in Hebrews 2 that he has, he owns the power of death. It clearly says in Colossians 1 that his domain is the domain of darkness. His domination, his dominion, his authority is the place of darkness. It very clearly says in Colossians 2, or excuse me, Ephesians 6, that he has, he is over, he has authority over this present darkness. And this supernatural, personal, evil one with his minions has one goal. It is not two opposing parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, who both think they've got the best idea of how to get the American people where they need to go. His only goal in life is to devour and destroy and kill. It is his delight to see little babies die of AIDS in Africa. He is a roaring lion seeking to devour, period. Not only is his goal to destroy and to devour and to murder and to torment and to torture, his goal is to be anti-Christ. That's how John puts it in 1 John. You can, you can describe Satan in this way, anti-Christ, because in Christ people have life and they have it abundantly. And if he can get us to not cling to Christ and love him and believe in him and enjoy him, he will give us death and he will give it to us abundantly. If nothing else is going on in the pigs in our passage, at least this much is going on. Jesus is allowing us to see what the demons wanted to do to the garrison demoniac. He's giving us a picture of what they wanted to do. They wanted to run him into the sea and destroy him. Not only that, you need to know That his enemy, his enemy is you. His enemy is you. Ephesians 6 is very clear. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. I was playing basketball. I was playing poison. Jake came to our house and taught us a new game called poison. It's like sort of a horse game, but not really. And um, I was watching Maddie come back with the basketball. One of the parts of the game is you roll the ball goes across the yard. She's coming back with the ba- basketball and out of nowhere, I get punched. I didn't really think about how I was gonna describe this. I get punched where you don't wanna get punched <laughs> by my son, Braden. And I was just commenting two days ago, he is changing in front of my very eyes. I mean, he's getting faster, he's getting stronger. His face, it's almost like I gotta teach him how to shave soon. It's amazing. <laughs> my four-year-old, I mean, just pops me and I'm down. I mean, I am down on the ground and I am done. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you the most risk you have in your life is when you don't know you're in a fight. I have never been in a fight where I've gotten hurt worse than when I've been sucker punched because I didn't know I was in a fight. You want a world history example? You want to know what Congress was saying about Pearl Harbor three months before Japan bombed it? We're not in this war. Not only that, they listed out what the 50 states were and they listed Alaska and Hawaii as if no one would ever attack those places. They're free from attack. Don't worry about it. 
You wanna know the worst atrocity? One of the worst atrocities, I don't wanna guess because I'm not a history major, but I'm guessing one of the worst atrocities is Pearl Harbor for America because we didn't know we were in a fight. You need to know that this one, regardless of whether or not you believe in him and understand that he exists, his hope is to kill you and you are his enemy. He thinks about you all the time. It says when he had tempted Jesus for 40 straight days, he left and he was looking for an opportune time to come back and get him. It says all throughout the New Testament that he has schemes and plans and traps. And right now, unbeknownst to us, even while we're not even thinking about him, he is thinking about us and he is desiring to devour us. Even if you're a believer, he still wants to see pain in your life. He still wants to see you not introduce other people to Jesus. He still wants to see you cry. He still loves to see us die and to not have an abundant life of joy that's promised to us in the gospel. I apologize for the sobriety of this, but what I don't want us to do is to think that's just in Mark chapter four, five, and it's not in my life. Let me tell you, we don't teach on this often enough. I'm so scared right now that I'm in heresy because no one teaches me about this. And so all I've done is just tried to look through the Bible and try and understand using word software like looking for devil and Satan and demons and that sort of thing and I'm just looking around. And I kind of came up with this and this may or may not be true. I would just like to offer it to you is what I understand from the scriptures that this is what I believe his scheme and his game plan and this is how he seeks an opportune moment in our lives and we're gonna come back to us here in a second. I believe that Satan's scheme is this for us to follow him by following the world, by following the passions and desires of our flesh. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. It doesn't say that he's gonna come to you with a deal. Hey, listen, I'm gonna give you tons of power and money, but it's gonna cost you your soul. Hey, I'm gonna give you the ability to play the fiddle really well. You know what he does? Thank you for those who just woke up. It's not time change, you know. It's never a frontal attack. It's never honesty. It's always deception. This is what Satan says. It's very clear. He just says, get on the lazy river of culture and ride that thing around. That's what the pattern of this world is. In Romans 12, Paul says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And he's saying, listen, I'm not gonna invite you to darkness and black candles and cat sacrifices. I just want you to think about vacation and career and marriage and raising your children. And I want you to think about all of life, just like the rest of the world. And as long as it's not one of the big, nasty, technicolor sins, I've got you right where I want you because you're not living every moment for the glory of God. You're just living like the rest of the world. It says that in Ephesians 2, that he wants us to follow him by following the patterns of this world. And the patterns of this world are set up to tempt us with what is already inside of us, which is I'm the boss it's about me, I want to advance, I want to succeed, I want to be famous, I want to be glorious. And so he never even has to come in and have you hit yourself with a stone or scream aloud and get pushed out into the tombs. 
Do you see this in this passage? Do you see this town? He goes, the herdsmen, verse 14, they leave because they've been watching thousands of pigs for lots of people. It's co-opting, you got that? I mean, these guys are professional pig herders and they go into the towns and the cities and into the entire region of 10 cities and tell them that their money is gone. Their livelihood is gone. Their future is gone. And instead of coming back and asking Jesus for the power at work in the demoniac's mind and heart and life, they tell him to leave because they would much rather have money and success and control. They're scared to death and they say, leave, and he does. Do you wanna know what Paul says? Do you wanna know what he says in 1 Timothy? Listen to this. In 1 Timothy 3, he says, this is how you open yourself up to the influence and the trap of the devil, pride. Thinking that you know what's best for your life, just like these townspeople. We know what's best for us. It's to have 2,000 pigs. It's not to have this guy come here and tell us what's gonna give us life. You wanna know what else it says in 1 Timothy 6, the second trap it talks about in 1 Timothy that will destroy you is another trap of Satan's, the desire to be rich. You're starting to see how the lamentable position in this passage is the position of the crowds who do not understand that Jesus is there to give them freedom, to give them life, to give them hope, to give them his kingdom. And I would say in here with none of us screaming and none of us gashing ourselves with rocks, which one do we look the most like? I know for me, I gotta repent right away of looking so much like my neighbor. Satan doesn't have to pull out oppression and possession with me. He's already got me at the beginning of his scheme. Ted, you've gone too far. (laughs) Me, demonized. Me, under Satan's influence, entanglement, and demonization. This is one of my only goals for this passage. When Riley was uh, two, Maddie was four, and Braden was a newborn. Trisha left me. She's left me multiple times in our marriage. Wise woman as she is. I'm just joking. She left to go on one of the aforementioned weekends where she would get away. And Riley comes up to me not speaking all that clearly or well. And some of you have heard this story, I might add, because there are two people who have stolen this story from me and tell it as if it's their own. One of them asked me for permission and told this, tells this story at conferences all around the United States. And the other one did not ask for my, position, my permission and he told this story like in Polk County or something. So I want you to know this is my story. It happened to me and Riley. If you've like heard it online or if like Chicken Soup for Your Soul or something has my story, this is my story. All right. Riley comes up to me and she goes, what about? Uh, excuse me? What about? I was like, I have no idea. And Riley's got a temper, like her mother. (laughs) That's not true. Cut that off the podcast, please. Um, She had a temper, and she was getting really angry at me. So I pulled pulled Maddie, and I was like, Maddie, what is she saying? And Maddie's like, I I don't have any idea what she's saying. And usually Maddie's a pretty good translator of the younger kids. She was probably four at the time, three and a half. And uh, so I called Trisha on her retreat. It's like, baby, I'm so sorry to bother you, but Riley's getting angry at me and she's on the ground squealing and hollering and she's saying this. And I get Riley to say it into the phone and Trisha goes, she's asking what that smell is. What's that smell? Oh, okay. So I am, of course, concerned with three kids in diapers because Maddie is probably, I'm sure it was morning and she was still in her pull-up 
And I'm like, oh, great, there's a smell. So let's go find it. So I take Riley and we start sniffing around the house. I mean, just, just going around the house. He's like, what, what am I? What am I? It's like, I don't know what the smell is. I mean, it bothered her all day long. I mean, she probably asked me on the hour all day long what the smell was. And then finally, that night, I was praying with her and singing over her and trying to, you know, trying to speak the gospel into her heart like I try to do. And her breath just absolutely knocked me over. It was so bad. I thought she should probably be brushing her teeth while her mom's gone. This is brilliant. And so Riley said, Riley, do this. Go, and I put my hand in front of her face. She does it. And she goes, not now. (laughs) By this point, she had probably had, like in the morning when she asked me, she had like six Slim Jims for breakfast. And uh, it was bad. My... My hope for this passage is that we would realize that that smell is coming from us. Because I gotta tell you some really fantastic news about an amazing savior and what he does for this man. But if you cannot begin to see our need for Jesus just like this man, you will not stand up and sing and rejoice and go live your life for his glory. Let's talk about it. If it is a complex reality, I have for you a complete and sufficient savior. If we live in a complex reality, I have for you a complete and sufficient savior. It is not our jobs primarily to figure all this out. It is our job to love him and be united to him and trust him and say, whatever you wanna do with me, you do it because I am growing to believe that what you have for me is the best possible thing that can happen to me. How does this story end? How does this text end? This is why Jesus does not let him go with him Go home, in other words, family. Go to your family and friends and tell them how much, literally how many, literally all that the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is what he's supposed to go tell his friends and family, verse 15. He can tell them all about verses two through five or three through five and how horrible his life was. And then he can come to verse 15 and say, but now I had had the legion, but I am sitting here I am clothed and I am in my right mind because Jesus had mercy on me. We often think, and rightfully so, we often think that the only thing happening at the cross is that Jesus is taking care of our guilt problem. You see, this is what happens at the fall. If you go back to Adam and Eve and Satan that comes in the serpent and God who is there with them, this is what happens at the fall. Not only are Adam and Eve guilty of rejecting God and rebelling against him and saying, I'd like to go it on my own. They don't actually go out on their own. They go into the dominion of darkness. They go under the domain of death. They are now having over them as their authority, Satan. And they don't know because they're just following the pattern of this world. And so at the cross, it is not just my guilt that's done away with because Jesus, as it says in Galatians 3, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. Not only, and that's beautiful and fantastic, and normally when I get to this point in the sermon, I generally preach on the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is exactly where we should start. I'm not trying to minimize that reality. But what I do not do well for us is I do not also talk about our problem is not just guilt. Our problem is bondage and corruption. That we are not just guilty before God. We are enslaved to Satan and our soul, our flesh, our spirit wants to be there. 
And so what Jesus does on the cross, he is a complete and holistic and amazing savior. He not only lives the perfect life so that he can die, and now what is against us in the law is nailed to the cross, Colossians 2. Not only does he deal with God primarily, absolutely, wonderfully, but he also deals with Satan. I don't know how, and I don't know what to degree, but I know this, that at the end of this passage, just look at the end of this passage, Jesus is out at sea when he wanted to be in Decapolis. The man wanted to be out at sea and he is in Decapolis. The man is with his friends and family in community and Jesus is back out to sea outside of the region. Are you, do you see where I'm going with this? Not only in this story do Jesus and the man trade places. Think about the end of the story. Jesus is in chains and bound. Jesus is cut and bruised and whipped. Jesus is naked. Jesus is stretched out on a tree, not sitting in peace. Jesus is crucified on the mountain outside the city. Jesus is in darkness. Do you get that from 12 to three, from noon to three? It's utterly dark because God has turned away and the light of the world is dying and darkness is having its day. Jesus is in mental torment. Jesus is in isolation. He's abandoned. He's betrayed. His friends don't know what else to do to help him. Jesus cries out in a loud voice. Jesus is driven into the tomb. And the demoniac is freed from the chains and the bondage. And the demoniac is clothed. In Decapolis, when you adopt someone, you put clothes on them. It proves that you're gonna take care of them. Jesus has said, I, the eternal son of God, will be abandoned by my father so that you can be adopted by him. That's one of the beautiful parts. I wish we had more time to talk about. The demoniac is freed from his torment. The demoniac enters the light. The demoniac enters the city. The demoniac engages with his friends. Listen, Hebrews 2 says it this way, that Christ had flesh and blood and so that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver, there's our word deliverance, all those who were subject to lifelong slavery. I don't have time to give you the four other passages where it talks about Colossians 2 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Corinthians 2. I, can't, I don't have time to walk you through all the passages that say at the cross, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God because we rebelled and he also did something with Satan because we were in bondage. Do you understand that Jesus could have just wiped Satan out without dying on the cross, but he could not bring you and I home without entering into death itself and causing death to blow up from the inside out because death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Let me tell you what happened to death. It stung the wrong man. Death piled on the Messiah. And in so doing, Jesus broke open hell's gates from the inside out. Let me tell you, you've never been loved like this. That's amazing. I didn't even know this was part of the Bible. I had no idea. And yet again, I find a place where I am in more danger, where I am more at risk, where I am exposed and vulnerable, and on the other side of it is Jesus protecting me, Jesus saving me, Jesus forgiving me, Jesus delivering me. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are beautiful to us and we don't understand it, but we are growing to believe that no matter what happens, you can be trusted and you are good. Jesus, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see. I pray that you would give us hearts to love. I pray that you would give us the will to obey. Please keep saving us. Please don't stop. We love you.